If you would join me at Romans chapter 12, verses 14 to 16. Let me read our text together for this morning. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Let's pray together. Our Father, I pray that you would help me to unpack these commands this morning for your church. And I pray that they would be words that would strike us to the very core of how we view those who do evil to us, of how we view our responsibility towards the outside world, towards unbelievers whom the Lord Jesus said would not understand us, would not like us, indeed would hate us and persecute us. How should we respond? How should we live? Help us this morning. May your words come with tremendous power. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The church lives and worships before a watching world. The Lord Jesus made this abundantly clear at several points in the Sermon on the Mount. For instance, Matthew 5, verse 13, when he said, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus says the church is the salt of the earth, the light of the world, the city that is set on a hill. Therefore, the church bears a tremendous responsibility for the way that we conduct ourselves before outsiders. Jesus warns us not to lose our saltiness, that is, our distinctiveness, through foolish or worldly living. A worldly church has nothing to offer the world. It's of no benefit to the world because it's just like the world. Jesus warns us not to hide our light, not to cloister ourselves away from the world in fear, but rather to let that light shine forth into the darkness like a city on a hill, aglow with the light of the gospel and with the luminescence of the Spirit. When it comes to our relationship to the world, in other words, we must be neither foolish nor fearful. In other words, we must be wise. That's precisely the way Paul stated it in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 5, a passage which bears a striking resemblance to Jesus' words in Matthew 5. Paul says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders. 
making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And you'll notice the same two elements in Paul's admonition to the church as we found in Jesus's. Don't be foolish. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Make the best use of your time. And don't be fearful. Speak graciously. Don't hide the truth, but answer anyone who asks. And if there are any doubt that persecution is the context in which Paul speaks these words, just let your eyes run a few verses up the page to where he tells the church to continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So Paul is in prison as he writes the letter to the Colossians for speaking the word of Christ. And yet he asks the Colossians to pray for him that he may continue to speak that word clearly, which he says is how I ought to speak. Then he immediately proceeds to tell the Colossians how they too ought to live and how they too ought to speak before a world that will also persecute them. Both Jesus and Paul, in other words, call the church to a kind of wisdom in how they act towards the world, towards those outside the church, towards their unbelieving neighbors. Wisdom is the opposite of foolishness and fear. And it is wisdom to which Paul calls the Roman church in our text for this morning. Last week we saw that the spiritual church is a church in tribulation and that it perseveres through that tribulation, which comes in a variety of forms. The tribulation that comes as a result of persecution from the world or temptation from the flesh or opposition from the devil or affliction that comes as a result of the curse. Whatever the tribulation is, the church faces it and perseveres through it with a faith that is joyful and steadfast and prayerful and sacrificial and hospitable. That context of tribulation carries over into our text for today in verses 14 and 16. The question is, how should the church respond to a world that persecutes it, that doesn't understand it, that hates it? And the answer is that it must respond with the wisdom that comes from the Spirit. The theme of Romans chapter 12 is the transformation of both Christians and of churches by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Each week I've tried to give you one overarching fruit of the Spirit-filled church. In verses 3 to 8 we saw that the spiritual church is a charismatic church in which every member possesses diverse gifts in order to fulfill diverse functions and roles within the one body of Christ. In verses 9 and 10, we saw that the fruit of the spiritual church is love. The spiritual church is a loving church, loving one another with righteous, affectionate, humble love. In verse 11, we saw that the spiritual church is an act. Church. It's the fruit of the spiritual church's ministry. 
It's passionately productive in ministry for the purpose of exalting Christ. And finally, in verses 12 and 13, last week, we saw that the spiritual church is a persevering church. The fruit of the spiritual church is perseverance, enduring tribulation with a faith that is joyful, steadfast, prayerful, sacrificial, and hospitable. Today, in verses 14 through 16, we see that the spiritual church is a wise church. A church that walks in wisdom towards outsiders who do not understand them, who often do not like them, and who may at times persecute them. And the question of the day is, how can First Baptist Nixa act in wisdom toward our unbelieving neighbors in such a way that we remain the salt of the earth, the light of the world, and the city set on a hill? In verses 14 to 16, Paul gives us four ways. First, we see that the wise church is a persecuted church. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Now, I don't think a lot needs to be said about the reality of persecution In the church of this age. Much of what we said last week regarding tribulation applies here as well. In fact, persecution was one of the four forms of tribulation that we focused upon. Two passages I think will suffice this morning to establish the truth that persecution is not an if, but a when, when it comes to the church. Paul wrote to Timothy from prison, I might add, awaiting execution. 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And Jesus told his disciples, just before his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, I might add, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If you've got a, a coworker, maybe a family member or a neighbor that is just mean to you and you can't figure out why, Jesus tells you. If you desire to live a godly life, you will be persecuted. If you're not of the world, the world will hate you. In other words, if you are a true church, a spiritual church, you will be persecuted. Why? Because you will be an affront to the, to the world's comfortable unrighteousness. You'll be a source of conviction to a world in darkness. You are the light of the world and the children of darkness hate the light because it exposes the evil of their deeds. Persecution can take several forms, but essentially it is any attack or any abuse that an individual or the state heaps upon you because of your faith or your way of life arising from that faith. In other words, if a church is wise, it will reckon with the reality of persecution and it will prepare itself for it. But that's not what Paul is addressing in Romans 12, 14, is it? Paul is not establishing the inevitability of persecution. He assumes 
the reality, the inevitability of persecution. And his, his focus is on how the church should respond to that reality. Furthermore, I think what Paul has in mind here is more general than what we would probably technically lump together under the heading of persecution. Throughout verses 14 to 21, which is probably one paragraph in your biblical text, Paul repeatedly deals with the topic of how the church responds to evil, evil of any kind. The main question of this passage is, how should the church treat her enemies? And Paul's response is radical. Just as radical as Jesus's in the Sermon on the Mount. How does the church respond to her enemies? The church loves her enemies. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Does that sound familiar? It should. It's straight out of the Sermon on the Mount. It's almost word for word what Jesus told his disciples in the most famous sermon ever preached. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Or in Luke Chapter 6, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Now, when Paul wrote Romans, neither the Gospels of Matthew or Luke had yet been written. So it appears that Paul is quoting from a well-known tradition of Jesus' teachings. In other words, this ethic of love your enemies was and is at the very core of what it means to be a church. And it has been so from the very beginning. It is part of what made the church so radically distinct from the world. Indeed, it made them famous. Christians were those who willingly accepted suffering for the sake of Christ. They willingly went to prison. They willingly went to the lions. They willingly went to their death. And they did so all the while loving their neighbors and praying for those who persecuted them. Now, the New Testament is abundantly clear that our model in such things is Jesus himself. If you want to know how you should respond to evil, how you should respond to evil people, to mean people, to hateful people, all you must do is look at how Jesus responded. 1 Peter 2, 19 to 24. Peter says, for this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows for... While suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, watch this, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 
Jesus's faith and his willingness to suffer injustice for the sake of the gospel is our model for when we are wronged. What was Jesus's response upon being arrested in the garden? You know, when, when Peter pulled out his sword and started flailing this way and that. Put your sword back into its place. For all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? He didn't strike back. He didn't retaliate. He didn't try to defend himself. He entrusted himself, says Peter, to him who judges justly. And when Jesus hung upon the cross, having been brutalized, beaten, scourged, insulted, blasphemed, what did he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What does it look like when Someone who is full of faith in the Holy Spirit suffers persecution. Remember Stephen, the church's first martyr, when he was dragged out of the Sanhedrin and taken out of the city and stoned to death. And as they were stoning Stephen, Luke writes, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen said precisely what Jesus had said in a similar situation. Why? Because the spirit of Christ dwelt within him. And if the spirit of Christ dwells within you, guess how you'll respond when people strike out at you and abuse you unjustly. And what was the result? What was the result of Stephen blessing his persecutors and not cursing them? Well, it led directly to the conversion of Paul. See, when the church does not respond to being wronged in the way that the world would respond, that is with a spirit of self-defense and self-protection, demanding and protecting our rights at all costs, retaliating with an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth ethic, that is with cursing. But rather when the church responds as Christ did, as Stephen did, that is not retaliating, not defending, not cursing, but rather bearing testimony to the gospel and praying for our persecutors, that is by blessing them, then the world will stand up and take notice and will ask us for the hope that is in us. They will ask, what kind of hope sustains these people who in the face of wrong, in the face of injustice, in the face of imprisonment, in the face of death, pray for their persecutors and embrace their suffering with joy? And then with one voice, the church can say, for us to live is Christ and to die is gain. There's the hope. The wise church is a persecuted church who in that persecution blesses their persecutors and does not curse them. Secondly, the wise church is an empathetic church. The church that walks in wisdom towards outsiders displays empathy even for their enemies. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. 
Now, many commentators think that Paul reverts here to once again talking about the relationship that Christians have to one another, which was the theme of verses 9 to 13 of Romans 12, but I'm not convinced. See, verse 14 very clearly deals with the church's enemies, and so does verses 17 to 21. So it seems to me that verses 15 and 16 also belong in that category. The question is, how? What's the relationship between verses 15 and 16 and verse 14 with its theme of persecution? I think it's this. Verses 15 and 16 help provide some explanation, some example of what it means to bless your persecutors. Now, I've already dealt with one way that we bless those who persecute us, who attack us, who abuse us. We fulfill the command to love our enemies when we don't retaliate in kind, when we don't attack back, when we don't seek at all costs to protect our reputation, protect our property, protect our life, but instead when we entrust ourselves to God and pray for them and bear testimony to the fact that Christ is better than life. And we implore God to save our persecutors and to pour out his grace upon them. That's one way that we bless and do not curse. But another way that we love our enemies is by empathizing with them. Sharing in both their joys and their sorrows. So I want you to think of an enemy. Think of an enemy. Someone who is unjustly mean to you, hurtful to you, abusive to you, angry towards you, harmful towards you. Think of an enemy. Someone who threatens you with harm. Someone who makes your life or your job or your marriage or your home miserable. You know that you are walking by the Spirit when you are able not only to not retaliate, but whenever you are able to bless them by praying for them and by empathizing with them. You know that you are walking by the Spirit when you don't feel envy or jealousy or bitterness when they receive some good thing, like the birth of a child or a job promotion or recognition for some achievement. And when you don't feel glad when they experience some sorrow, the death of a loved one, or the loss of a job, or some manner of personal or professional ruin, you don't rejoice in the fact that they got theirs, they got what was coming to them. When you are able to truly and really rejoice in their gain and truly and really to weep in their loss, then you are loving your enemies and then you are displaying the fruit of the Spirit of Christ. Third, the wise church is a harmonious church. Live in harmony with one another, Paul says. What does he mean? Two questions I think need to be answered. Number one, what does Paul mean? And number two, how does it relate to persecution? Well, the answer to the first question is made difficult by the ambiguity of the Greek. Literally, Paul says, think the same thing towards one another. What does that mean? Does Paul mean be of the same mind with one another, be in unity, be in harmony like the ESV translates it? Or does Paul mean have the same concern for everyone? In other words, don't think more highly of this person than you do of this person because of something that they have, like they're, they're more wealthy or they're more beautiful or they have a better economic status or whatever it may be. 
Well, it's difficult to decide, but I, I think it's best to go with the majority and to take this as an admonition to harmony and unity. When Paul says, think the same thing towards one another, I think he means live in harmony with one another. Be unified with one another. The next question is, who's the one another? Is he talking about within the church or our relationship with those outside the church? Well, again, I think the theme of the passage is the church's relationship and response to outsiders, namely to its enemies. We've already dealt with the harmony and the unity that ought to exist within the church. I think he's saying here, as much as it depends upon you, try to live in harmony, in peace with your neighbors. Try to live in harmony and in peace with your enemies. So how do you bless an unbelieving world that by nature is prone to hate you? Well, by being a good neighbor. In other words, don't be a jerk. Don't be a nuisance. Don't be offensive with anything but the gospel. The gospel is offensive enough. You don't need to add to its offense your own obnoxiousness. Don't be that guy. You know who that guy is? He's the one that you don't want to be around. You roll your eyes every time he's around because he adopts this holier-than-thou attitude. He's always looking down his nose at other people. He's the guy that is always telling on his neighbors because they don't fit with the HOA guidelines. Don't be that guy. Don't be obnoxious. Work hard. Be kind. Stay above the fray. Exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, and you will be an aroma of life to some, but not everybody. To others, you will be a fragrance of death and judgment, says Paul in 2 Corinthians 2, 14. If you live and walk by the Spirit, to some of your neighbors, you will become the aroma of life unto life. To others, you will be the fragrance of death unto death. That's okay. It's inevitable. So was Jesus. And he's our model. Fourth and finally, the wise church is a humble church. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Paul appears here to call for two kinds of humility. The first two phrases belong together as the positive and the negative, the, the sickness and the cure, all right? First, he says, love the lowly. Don't give preference to those who are of a high social class. Don't consider yourself one of them. Don't view others as beneath you, as beneath your dignity, beneath your concern and your time and your effort. You want to know how to love your enemies? Be different from the world. And there's nothing more different than this. The, the world is always looking up, always drooling over, admiring, groveling before those who have what they want, money or fame or power or beauty. If that were not true, there would be no celebrity culture. No celebrity magazines, no society pages in the newspaper, no lifestyles of the rich and the famous. It wouldn't hold any attraction to us. But it does. You want to know where the church first caught the world's attentions? I mean, before it was welcomed into the halls of power, 
Before all of the gold and the stained glass, before the great basilicas and the cathedrals were erected when it was still an unrecognized illegal religion in the pagan Roman Empire, the early Christians did two things that the world simply could not comprehend. They suffered persecution willingly and they took care of the poor. Those were their hallmarks. They suffered persecution willingly, and they took care of the poor. Now we have mass mailouts and television ads. Why? Because we're so indistinct from the world that we have to tell the world who we are and beg them to come visit us. Listen, if we want to love the world, if we want to love our enemies, then take your eyes off of the rich and the powerful and the famous and the beautiful and set them upon the lowly and love them. The second kind of humility for which Paul calls, never be wise in your own sight, is equally radical. Because the world runs on self-indulgence, self-exaltation, self-aggrandizement, self-infatuation, self-preoccupation. It runs on the energy of self. That it simply cannot comprehend someone who is free from the slavery of self. Do you want to love your enemies? Don't walk around talking about yourself. Don't adopt some holier-than-thou self-righteous arrogance. If you want to walk wisely before outsiders, don't be wise in your own eyes. Leon Morris, great New Testament commentator of the 20th century, wrote this. The person who is wise in his own eyes is rarely so in the eyes of others. And he's right. Don't be conceited because the world has had enough of that. Let the church be different. Love your enemies. That's the call of this text. That's the call of Christ to the church in this age. And the spiritual church will love our enemies by walking in wisdom towards outsiders. How? Number one, by embracing the reality and the inevitability of persecution. And by responding to that persecution, by not retaliating when it comes, by not attacking our enemies, by not retreating into some protectionist self-defense mentality, but rather blessing our persecutors by praying for them, bearing testimony to the joy and life in Christ found through faith in the gospel. The cry of the church is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The cry of the church is to live as Christ, to die is gain. Number two, we love our enemies by empathizing with them, by sharing in both their joys and their sorrows, not being envious when good things happen to them, not rejoicing when they finally get what's coming to them, empathizing with them. Third, we love our enemies by living in harmony with them. Loving our neighbors means being good neighbors. Don't be that guy. Don't be obnoxious. Work hard. Be kind. Stay above the petty squabbles that mark every day in this world and every day on social media. And number four, we love our enemies by being humble. By loving the lowly, not thinking that we're better than they are, smarter than they are, more deserving than they are. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not? The church understands those words. Beloved, do you want to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world, the city on the hill? Then you must be different. Radically different. 
Love your enemies.